Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. John and myself, Mooncat, is Ocho. Hello. Now, we are a bit tardy, aren't we, if we're going to be perfectly honest, because we were supposed to be doing this show last week, but we We didn't. just lost track of Thanksgiving. When you were going to do Laurel and Hardy for Thanksgiving, and then we decided to take that week off, and I think we were still thinking that we are going under our old schedule, which everything was a week ahead. So we announced City Lights of its originally intended date, and then realised that we had to get Laurel and Hardy out ready for Thanksgiving. Nevertheless, I mean, you know, all those, like, Harold Stepto says... Uh, hey, you know those... we were talking about pre-code raciness... Oh yeah, yeah. We yeah, forgot yeah. to mention the Laurel and Hardy film Liberty, which I think might have been their last silent, which involves, for good and sufficient reasons, them trying to take their pants off in public. Well, no, them in public trying to find a reasonably private place to take their pants off. I'm putting the back And I on think again. there's definitely an element of hmm to the reactions that is definitely incredibly suggestive. Just for the avoidance of doubt, they are going to put them back on again. Yes, they're going to take their pants off, swap pants. And then put the correct pants on it, if I remember. It's been a while since I've seen Liberty. And then there's something about the crab landing at the pants and pinching. What are we talking about this week? We're doing a request. Remember we promised when we came back from our earlier summer break that we were just going to go through the request list. Pow, pow, pow. And it's like, well, no, okay, we won't go through the request list one after the other because we have to do some things to amuse ourselves. So two requests and then one of our own. And uh, that didn't last. Who asked for watching? I think that was Laps Cat. Watching is still on the list. It's not off the list. It's still on there. It's just working out the best way to do it. One episode I got through. I mean, it's perfectly all right, but two of them I've just met in the first episode. Right? Okay, if I, I'm hoping Laps Cat is listening to this. Lapsed, if I can call you that. <laughs> is it okay for us to do watching old school and just do one episode? And judge it entirely on the basis of one episode. Okay, now here's the thing. Right, because it's not fair to judge it on the first episode of, of any new series. So here's the thing. Lapscat, if you're happy for us to do an old school sitcom club with watching, you tell us which episode. Send us an IMDB link of precisely which episode to watch. You pick the strongest one. How's that? Is that fair enough? I was asking you that, Ocho, not Lapscat, because he can't. Oh, that's fine with me. Yes, media. yes. Yes. Right. As you said, we've got requests. And I think that by the magic of telephony, we should actually hear from the person who put the request in right now. Hello, Mooncat and Ocho. Loving the episode so far, but hey, listen, when is the sitcom club finally going to get round to doing City Lights? You know, the brilliant and underrated BBC Scotland comedy from the 1980s, not that awful Robson Green thing that was on recently. It's nearly Christmas, and given the late great Gerard Kelly was king of the Glasgow panto scene, maybe now's as good a time as any? Just a thought. Anyway, keep up the good work and best wishes for the holidays. Yours, Ian Hepburn, off the Thumbcast. So is that a piece of blatant cross-promotion? That if we mention the Thumbcast, thumbcast.com, very heavy on the pop culture, heavy on the genre shows, they know the difference between Star Trek and Button Moon. And maybe they'll mention us. Is that the thing? Is that the idea? Well, possibly so. Possibly so. Why ever not? Because I'm presuming that Ian Hepburn was actually in the Thumbcast studio when he spoke to us there, the uh, the magic of sound. I bet they don't so, think of Star Trek Enterprise as the new one. Okay. In my defence, last week on STV Night Shift, and if you don't live in Scotland, you don't know what you're missing. 
basically is live continuity on television overnight. Seriously, and it's just like pictures of hills and stuff like that where somebody's gabbing away over it and responding to tweets and what have you. The other night, whoever it was was on it, she said, here's an interesting story for all you Trekkies. And the story on the screen was the new Star Wars movie. Hey! I'm not as bad as that, am I? I'll say this for you. You know the difference between star quality and star burst? Incidentally, because we've just been talking about Laps Cat's request and Ian's request we're going to do today, we did actually have one other request as well, which was from Birdie. So, Birdie, perf. So, City Lights. I think you need to introduce this, because isn't this part of your culture? Is this a major part of your life growing up? The way that you say this is part of your culture, it's almost as if this was on some sort I'm of... I'm from Bradford, I don't have a culture. This is as if, as if it was on some sort of, like, ghetto channel or something. You know, I didn't I didn't live in you know, <laughs> Wales, I didn't have S4C, for goodness sake. But anyway, okay, right, let me explain. City Lights, lovely little sitcom, initially began as a one-off in 1984, and then ran from 86 all the way through to 1991, and starred the very much missed... Gerard Kelly as Willie Melvin, who was a clerk in a bank by day, but also an aspiring writer and had sort of delusions of grandeur and so on. Big old supporting cast amongst them was Andy Gray as his, I was going to say rough diamond pal Chancer, but he's not really a diamond, he's just rough, isn't he? And Jonathan Watson, of course, you see nowadays on Only an Excuse on Hogman A as Brian, he works with in the bank. Dave Anderson, who's well-known actor and playwright and also, I believe, jazz musician from around these parts, and he's the manager of the bank. Jan Wilson is Willie's mum. In the series that we watch, series two, Elaine Collins is Willie's girlfriend, Janice. Also in the show is the late Ian McCall, it's Tam. And series one featured Louise Beatty. Peter Blake appeared three times as a minister in the last series, in 1991. And in one series also, you had Billy Connolly appearing in one episode, and that was the It's a Wonderful Life spoof that we mentioned last week. And Kenneth Cope. Yes, indeed, yes. More about that him was later a surprise. on. And last but not least, Elaine C. Smith, probably better known as Mary in Rhapsody Nesbitt. Here she's Irene, and she delivers the well-known catchphrase, Pure Dead Brilliant. Now, I can't be absolutely sure that Pure Dead Brilliant originates from City Lights, but it's certainly the first place that I would have heard it as a young un in the 1980s. And as far as I'm concerned, that's where it came I from. I remember seeing it on a postcard sometime in the 90s and thinking, what, where has this come from? Why has this postcard got this unusual chunk of words all over it? Didn't buy the postcard. Don't know why I mentioned it. It's usually delivered as in, it's Pure Dead Brilliant, so it is. It's not usually delivered just as in the free words. You don't usually just exclaim pure dead brilliant. It's usually so I have part a question. of a, a longer sentence. Did I enjoy this? It's all You're over the place me. in terms of tone and direction, but it was not a chore to watch. Kept coming back, and it must be more than just the spats effect. So shall we go episode by episode as we normally do when we try and organise our thoughts? Because initially, Willie's introduced with just a very simple gag about giving money to a busker doesn't have enough money to buy a paper. It kind of casts him that he's a bit of a lovable loser, but I don't know, it reminded me of that terrible bank advert, the easy like Sunday morning one. Guy walking down the street, but oh look. Oh, the fellow with the cat. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it was a deliberate riff, but for some reason it put that in mind. 
And then very quickly, Willie seems to be portrayed as being incredibly arrogant and vain and borderline nuts. Okay, well, I'm going to respond to that in just a second. But the first thing I'll say about the show, and this is going to sort of colour my response throughout the podcast, is that it's very difficult for me to be impartial about this because not only did I grow up watching this show in the 1980s and it was one of those shows that went out on BBC Scotland first and then later on was networked on BBC Two, much like Still Game. Was it? Yes, indeed. Yes, it was. It was indeed. Much like, Still, much like Still Game, 20 or so years later. And I'd never even heard of it when this came up. And that's not like me. But also, because this is a Glaswegian sitcom, it just sort of feels like it's something that I'm particularly attached to in the same way as any show which particularly emanated from Queen Margaret Drive, which would have been BBC, or Cow Cadden's, which was STV. You know, it's sort of like, this is, this is my show, this is mine. You know, this is a bit of my culture. I can sit here and rave about City Lights, and I probably will do, because I really enjoyed watching it again. I hadn't seen it for the best part of, I don't know, 20-odd years. And it just felt like it was yesterday. It didn't feel dated at all. It didn't feel like it belonged in the past. But I've got to bear in mind that I can't really take the rose-tinted glasses off in this case. I know we were saying last week about how we were a watch Law and Hardy when we were growing up, and yet it was a different viewing experience for G just watching it for the first time in 2014. But I don't really think it's possible for me to be impartial about this because it's just too entwined with my upbringing. I mean, that, it would be like asking me to have an impartial view of Glenn Michaels' cartoon Cavalcade. Hey! It's not going to happen. Glenn, as far as I understand, is a lovely chap. I heard him being interviewed on the radio just a few years ago, and yeah, he sounded very, very nice. Say uh, what you like about him, as long as he's complimentary. Well, exactly. And why ever not? And you know, well, I mean, I'm going to throw out some names, and I won't hear a word against any of these names, but not that there's anything to hear against them, because I don't think there is. But, I mean, I've told you about Bill McHugh, Mr. Hogman Man, and Andy Cameron we grew up with, and Arthur Montford, who was a sports presenter for STV, started all the way back in, I think, 1957. He was still there until 89. He's still around today. And, you know, we had Doogie Donnelly on the BBC, and, of course, Scotch and Rye, Hogman the great man himself, Ricky Fulton. Yeah, all these shows, they're all just sort of from either BBC Scotland, which is Scotland-wide, or from STV, which at that time was purely the central belt, so the central lowlands of Scotland. However, because of where the companies are based, yeah, <laughs> there was a set... I know you're going to sort of pick up on this point, but there is a certain sort of Glasgow-centric element to a lot of the shows that we grew up watching in Scotland. And I know this is sometimes, you know, a bit of a beef for people in all parts of the country, and that's just their Only last tough week luck. I saw somebody complaining about West Coast humour. Well, that's his problem, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, <I'm... laughs> no, usually, usually I am a bit more even-handed than that, but again. Okay, I don't want to hear people from the northeast whinging about how all the Glasgow comedies all over the telly and what have you, or people from Edinburgh. Okay, right, it just so happens that the BBC and STV are based in Glasgow. That's just the way it is. Now, if, for whatever reason, if this podcast was about the oil industry then presumably I'd be having a good moan about, oh, all those people with their North Sea oil-related jobs 
in the northeast. What about us in Glasgow? But we're not. We're talking about television culture. And Edinburgh is different as well. And you know how they say the past is another country. Well, Edinburgh is just... I can't crack Edinburgh. You know, I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it. But, okay, they've got their own thing and they've got the festival and what have you. Oh, that's fine. You, you do your own stuff. But just either watch Tune the Fat and enjoy it or don't. Just go somewhere else. And if this is the first time you've ever listened to the podcast, I would like to point out that I usually am a bit more level-headed than that. And hopefully you can agree with me on that, Ojo. I'm staying out of this. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm just sitting here having an argument myself. I don't know. I don't entirely have a dog in this race, not having grown up in the northeast of Scotland or in STV land, or indeed that part of border that's on that side of the border. How bad is it that I classify Scotland by... Scotland, yes, I I, I know Scotland. The three main regions are (laughs) Grampian, STV, and border. Look, okay, the northeast, they had Scotland the what? Border, they had Derek Beatty, and central Scotland has sitcoms that come from Glasgow. And that's just the way it is. And I know that I could... I I'm could... going to put a charge to you. I'm not counsel for the prosecution on this charge, but I would like you to put up a defence. Glasgow is Scotland's Liverpool. Okay, now... Uh, okay, now I've heard this. I've heard this before. All right, now... I'm, I'm really not prepared to concede much on this because I'm just... Because it's so close to home, I'm just not going to put myself in the other person's shoes and say, oh, no, you know, maybe they've got a point. Yes, I suppose, yes, there's a lot of Glasgow-centric, you know, culture on television and what have you. No, screw it, right? It's just the way it is. Deal with it. You know, there's, you've got Xboxes now and what have you, so if you don't like Still Game, something wrong with you. But anyway, if you don't like Still Game, then go and do something else. Read a book or something. That's what they do in Edinburgh, isn't it? They read books and listen to Radio Scotland. Anyway, right. Point is, I'm going to get. Have so you ever much... been cornered by a scouser telling you? This right. No. I know. I know. Okay. No, yeah, no, okay. Right now. Though no. actually, I'll, I'll, I might extend that rather because that may sound like I am virulently, if I can say it, anti-scouse. I'm going to extend this. Glasgow is Scotland's Liverpool in that the people who are the most terminal about it aren't actually there. I've never met a scouser who was boring about Liverpool in Liverpool. They're always miles away from Liverpool. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but you've suggested this to me before, and I'm going to remind you of when it was that you suggested it to me. The opening ceremony for the Commonwealth Games. Now, I think ultimately by the end of the two hours, I think they pulled it off. I think they had a good opening ceremony and what have you, and there you are. And they had, like, obviously Kylie, so way. And, you know, they had all the bits and pieces and, and, and they got across what they wanted to get across. And you've got the whole big part with the parade of all the different athletes, nations, and so on. So it all went well and ultimately it was fine. And, of course, the Commonwealth Games themselves were a great success and it was lovely to be in the city whilst that was taking place. The first half an hour or so of that opening ceremony, Okay, how can I describe this? What they tried to do was to get all of the stereotypical elements of Scotland that you'd expect, like tartan and highland cows and the crankies and all that kind of stuff, and include them and just sort of like cram them in to a space that was too small and do it in a sort of ironic wink-wink sort of sense. I was sat right here where I'm sat right now and I'm looking at this and all I could think of was my friend who I knew had paid 120 quid for his ticket. And I'm looking at it, oh my. God. Oh, 
oh, and the thing is that it was like, oh, weren't we brilliant? Hey, Glasgow, look, thistles, fucking hell. And <laughs> I, mess- I messaged you and I said, are you watching this? Because I think you might be watching the iPlayer. And you replied to me and you said, Glasgow's in danger of becoming Scotland's Liverpool. And yeah, okay, I can accept that. I know what you mean. It can get a bit sort of grating, and there was there was times over that sort of period where, yeah, you keep on being told how wonderful Glasgow is by Glaswegians, and I'm thinking, well, I want to hear that from somebody else. And actually, I think that most of the like the athletes and the visitors and what have you who were here pretty much said that anyway. So that was nice. But I'll concede a very very small point on that front, but not much. <laughs> right. So the character of Willie, in some ways. It felt like I was watching a rough cut and you could edit any episode so you could make Willie just look like an unsympathetic protagonist. Make him look like a jerk, make him look horribly selfish. Or the little judicious pruning. No, he's okay, okay. he's a lovable loser. It was a very complete characterisation, but it was a bit, there was slightly one dimension too many sometimes. I know what you mean, he does sort of, sometimes you can test your patience. Because there's elements actually. By the way, actually... everybody, I am getting ready to mention Bradford. Such a way. In some ways, you know, Willie actually reminded me a little bit of Martin Bryce, because he can be incredibly big-headed and give himself airs and graces and so on when he gets a little bit of praise. Like, for example, there were sort of similarities in one of the episodes local hero when martin was the local hero in his area and without, yes yeah and without giving away too much yeah a little bit of praise and suddenly it's all what they can talk about when he thinks for example he's got his book deal in the last episode in the series two yeah i mean there's times in that episode where he tests people's patience to the limit and yet there's other times when you've got a feel from you've got a feel for his vulnerable side I don't think he's all that bad. I think that when he's getting all sort of big-headed and what have you, he's doing so in a way where he's almost asking to fail. He's just setting himself up for punch to the gut. Whereas he hasn't quite got, say, Martin's editating habits quite as much. He hasn't got the same perseverance as Martin. He's not the kind of person who would harbour a grudge for days or weeks on end or anything like that. Yeah, I think Willie's tolerable. I think that, yeah, he can be annoying and what have you, and I'm not quite sure how his girlfriend puts up with him. But certainly the people around him give as good as they get, and he has to take a lot of hits from his boss at the bank. Plus, uh, we're given to understand that he's known Chancer pretty much all his life, and he's probably had quite a lot of shit to deal with from him. So he's dreaming of something a bit better. Just like we were talking about Ollie last week. You know, he's got aspirations. Have you seen the sitcom version? Of Billy Liar. Yes. Willie's the other side. He's still in the likeable phase. I'm just surprised at how nuts he behaves in some of those scenes. I've only seen one episode of the sitcom version of Billy Liar. And oh god, he's horrible! Well, you must have seen at least 1.2, because you've seen the All-Star Comedy Carnival as well. Maybe that's the one I have seen. Okay, maybe I've only seen... I thought that was an entire episode. Where he steals stuff from the funeral parlour and gives them out as presents. Oh, yeah, it might be that one, yes. And it's just like, you're not selling me on him at all. And I've seen the movie, which was made in Bradford. 
And that just about balances out. I was again reminded of that when Willie starts writing for Kenneth Cope, who's a, in this case, a washed up comedian, but those aspirations to maybe become a comedy writer and, and move off to a, a different city. And do you see my point, though, that with a few judicious snips, you could make Willie lose sympathy very quickly? I'm quite surprised how early on in episode one he goes crazy in front of that famous author. That he's just like, boom, there's the manuscript. Please read my stories. Well, look, I haven't got time for this. Do you want me to sign the book? Oh, you're a rubbish writer anyway. Nice, you wouldn't buy anything from it. He's carried out of the shop. And I thought, that's a very strange way to set the tone. It didn't escalate. It didn't sort of like, oh, you know, big fan. And oh, but by the way, if you have, I don't know, there should have been some well meant misunderstanding that ended up piling on top of another misunderstanding. Whereas Willie just flipped. Okay, now, I don't know if this is a relevant point or not, but it might possibly explain your response to Willie. Now, you've seen Still Game, yeah. Okay, so you'll be familiar with the way that characters interact in a show like Still Game, where we've talked before about how characters in sitcoms can get away with saying things that ordinarily would, at the very, very minimum, cause a very bad atmosphere in the room and sometimes would cause actual rifts between friends and family members but in the case of say, i don't know dale boy for example he can say something towards rodney and it's just you know forgotten about it's just over and done with now the way that the characters in still game for example interact and the way that they are constantly sort of flinging minor insults in each person's direction all the time there's a lot of that going on in City Lights as well. And I think that that is a general trait of, again, because I can't, uh, I can't look at this in any more broad sense. I'm going to say Glaswegian round Scottish humour. I think that's more accurate. Glaswegian humour, there's quite a bit of that. There's quite a bit of sort of punchiness and a lot of, you know, not necessarily one-upmanship, but just sort of, you know, sort of coming back with witty put-downs and so on. It's just a normal sort of aspect within... Glasgow humour. And that might possibly explain why you think that Willie is sometimes acting in a way that would be off-putting around most people. Because, like I said before, for every time that he's pompous and big-headed and insults somebody or insults them accidentally and so on, he receives it straight back. Doesn't matter who it's from, doesn't matter if it's his mum or his girlfriend or Chancer or Tam or his boss at the bank or whoever it is, that's just a standard part of the constant dialogue and constant interaction. So I suspect if you took Willie out of Glasgow and put him somewhere else, then yeah, perhaps you'd think that his manner and so on is going to be more testing for the people around him. Because if you if you put Willie it's, it's the way not that just he, like Oh, his pet is a little bit. Well, no, because it's, it's, it's not so he much. He came across as unbalanced, like a stalker. Yeah, I know what you mean, but the thing is that because Willie's in Glasgow, then no matter who is around him, when he's being big-headed or if he's acting in a strange way or whatever it might be, somebody is just going to immediately puncture it. Whereas I think that if you were to put Willie in a different environment where people were perhaps a bit more sort of reserved and polite and so on, then he could come across as quite... Okay, let me give you an example. Last episode of Series 2, where he's in the publisher's office, and there's a mistaken identity and so on. 
when he was talking to the other author in the waiting room, that reminded me hugely of the other one. Reminded me of Richard Briars and Michael Gambon. And if everybody around Willie was like Michael Gambon, then Willie would just be absolutely insufferable and you wouldn't have one ounce of sympathy for him. But of course, they're not like that. So it's all relative, isn't it? I don't really know if I've answered your point there or not, but... I've got another question, which I think might require information from outside of the two series we watched. Is Willie rubbish? As a writer? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. That's useful to know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, just yes. occasionally, it's kind of like we're only getting little bits. We're never getting a full idea. I was just curious if it was just he's not getting the breaks or he pumps out stuff that in such a volume that the good is mixed with the bad or, yeah, he's actually kind of delusional <laughs> about his dreams of becoming a writer. No, to the best of my knowledge slash memory, unless there's some huge big reveal at the end of season six, then no, Willie Willie is not a good writer. And <laughs> yeah, I mean the the little hints that you get, I, I don't think that it's some sort of elaborate ploy to like put in a sort of red headache and then suddenly the big reveal comes that actually he's an undiscovered genius. No. There's, there's nothing that I've seen on the evidence of the first couple of series that suggests that it was just a matter of time before he was discovered. Well I didn't think necessarily it was a story of an undiscovered genius, but it's kinda of like is he competent is he going to be Ed Reardon? Well, <laughs> I was, yeah, okay, I was wondering about that. If Willie was a character in 2014, would he, unquestionably, he'd have a blog. That goes without saying, obviously. He'd probably be quite a frequent tweeter. And I think, in a way, yeah, maybe he would. Maybe he would just sort of scrape a living just doing like sort of bits and pieces. He'd probably tell people that, you know, he was working on this grand novel. Uh, whereas it's more likely that he would be writing the bits and pieces for like the detective magazine that he was taking the piss out of in the pub. You know, he would just be sort of taking, you know, whatever he could to get by. But yeah, I, I suppose he could probably... I wonder if he would have fallen down the self-publishing hole. Do you think he might have fallen for one of those adverts? I'd like to think not. That was actually a, a bone of contention in the last series of Peep Show, because Mark did fall exactly into that trap because he had his book, The Business... Actually, can we separate two things? Because I do have friends who self-publish. We're not talking about self-publishing, we're talking about vanity publishing. Oh, yeah, 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 I beg your pardon. Thank you. Let me just... Just before uh, one of my friends never speaks to me again, (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about vanity publishing. Self-publishing is completely legitimate, though it can coexist with regular big company publishing. By self-publishing, I'm talking about... I don't about. know, I can't read. I forgot no. how to. <laughs> yeah, I used the term incorrectly, and that's my fault, because I'm an idiot. I mean vanity publishing. I mean he's fallen into the trap of one of those adverts in the press that says, oh, do you want to get your book published, and so on, and then he ends up paying to get his bloody book published, and it comes out you know, badly. But no, Mark and Peep Show, in the last series, went down that road of falling for the vanity publishing trick and his book Business Secrets of the Pharaohs was published in such a way that, you know, he stumped up a fair bit of cash and of course the book comes out and it's largely illegible and so on. And a lot of people actually on the forums at the time were saying, 
Mark's always so level-headed. He's like the the miserable rationalist in the room at all times, guaranteed to suck the life out of all parties. I mean, how on earth could he fall for this? However, as other people then came back and pointed out, this is his dream. This is his little pet project. This is what he wants to do. So his critical faculties are not 100% when suddenly the prospect of having this book published comes into view. Actually, going back to City Lights, when Willie got taken in by the dodgy writing school run by Gregor Fisher, that seemed a little bit out of character. I think the same sort of thing applies. I mean, it was a great little performance, just a little piece by Fisher. So it was worth it. It wasn't an episode killing. I've just realised I've I've almost set myself up like I'm going to bat away every single one of the nice things you say about this. I was generally well disposed towards this. And to answer the last question of the podcast right now, yes, I'm going to persist with it. But this is the thing, again, that you could say that the writing is Willie's weak spot. So in the episode where, for example, his mum has fallen for the ex-con who's going to do the usual business, go through the post office savings book and so on, starts pawning or jewellery and what have you, you know, Willie's onto him immediately. He's not fool. Willie's not daft in that sense. You know, he's got all the people around him, like Tam, for example, who is daft and is slow on the uptake. So Willie's not like that. But yeah, when it comes to his dream, that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a writer so he is going to be susceptible to anything that comes along and of course like the episode with Kenneth Cope for example performers in town performer needs material straight away there he is what's the production background of the people involved in this show it's just I have something written down here and it's sketch acting and sketch writing that occasionally something that's done in one of the episodes will be funny in and of itself and make sense in isolation but a bit like Willie flipping out in the bookshop, Willie goes to a writing school which is so patently shaky and weird. And the slideshow, the way Brian is clicking the <laughs> the thing for the next slide is very funny, but also a bit bizarre and jarring. So it some ways feels like sketch people moving into sitcom. Some of the bits of the sketch where that you can inflate and exaggerate things has kind of stuck. Well, the writer of City Lights, Bob Black, also wrote for Naked Video and wrote for Scotch and Rye. So I guess you could say there's an element of that. I mean, bear in mind, of course, Ramsey Nesbitt began as a character in Naked Video before he was yeah. a sitcom. So, yeah, ideas that would have worked as a single sketch, yes, I guess that sometimes they can be elongated and turn into a an episode with... But then again, you you're going to be... What, a teenager when this show's on? Oh, much no younger than that. It started in 86. So, so that's probably one nine. of the reasons you like it, though. It gives you something to latch oh, yeah. on to. No, I think, yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's just part of my sort of... I don't think slide projectors are really a thing anymore, but if ever I come into possession of one and have to operate one, I know exactly how I'm going to operate that clicker. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to have a slide projector, you also have to do the business of inserting all the slides in the correct manner, so they're not upside down, they're not back to front, and they're also in the correct order. And then having done so, you must look very pleased with yourself, and then someone else must ask you the time, and you look at your watch. That's compulsory. I thought it was very nice of Michael Charvel Martin to lend his moustache to Jonathan Watson. (laughs) Now, we, okay, we established that Jimmy Finlayson 
had a false moustache, but I do not believe that Jonathan I think Watson's sometimes. I'm not, I'm not willing to say it all the time. I don't believe that Jonathan Watson's moustache in City Lights was a falsy. I don't think well, so. Well, maybe Michael Charville Martin gave him his moustache stencil. He doesn't have a moustache nowadays because I've seen him in on well, an excuse nowadays. And he, yeah, he doesn't, definitely doesn't have one. Okay, now here's a point, a serious point that we should have brought up last week. When Ollie was playing his wife, did he shave off his tash or did he have his yes. tash covered up with makeup? No, he shaved it off. In fact, I'm not sure how often his moustache was real. Definitely real in some films, but I'm going to have to go back and look. I'm curious as to whether sometimes that wasn't a real moustache. Or, of course, on the schedule these are being made and a toothbrush moustache, it wasn't a particularly bushy moustache at any point. It might not be that difficult to shoot all the clean-shaven scenes right at the end of the film and just by the time the next film's going to be in front of the cameras, the moustache will be back. Moustaches! Speaking of people with moustaches, Mr. McClelland. Now, he's quite sympathetic as an antagonist. He's got presence. He's likeable. I think as a character, he's got plenty of comic mileage. There were a few occasions when I thought, he is being far too lenient with Willie. Because Willie's just absolutely taking the piss as an employee. Yeah, well, that comes back again to sketches inside a sitcom. Something that makes sense in itself, but really there should be consequences to this if this is meant to be an ongoing narrative. The one being when Brian put on Mr. McClellan's wig. <laughs> yes. And was caught mocking him. And my my wife was in the room and went, what the? Why are they still there? Why is they <laughs> just cleared the room? It's advertised everybody's jobs. <laughs> they do have rather lax disciplinary procedures at SSP. And we haven't seen every episode of all six series, of course, but it would not surprise me if there was an episode along the lines of when Mr. Mackay went this training course in Pottage ah, yes. and suddenly was replaced with Peter Jeffrey. And yeah, I could definitely imagine that Mr. McClellan would go and be promoted and go somewhere else and Willie would be all, hey, finally I've seen the back of him. And then, okay, who can we cast in the role as Mr. McClellan's temporary replacement for two-thirds of an episode who'd be much, much more severe with Willie and wouldn't stand for any of his nonsense? Michael Sheard. <laughs> Michael Sheard making Mr. Bronson look happy-go-lucky. One of those wrestlers you like. Who's the heel's heel? The heel's heel. Historically, let me think somebody... I I can't help but think of just somebody who'd be so out of place. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like the Road Warriors who were a tag team who had face paint on and had like shoulder pads with big metal spikes coming out of them. But they'd be very, very unlikely to get the role of manager in the SSB branch. I, I can't see it. Uh, I don't know how they would have wangled that. They certainly wouldn't have been like good counter staff. I think they would have scared off the punters. Michael Sheard as Hitler, basically. As long as he has that line from the Tomorrow People. <laughs> Janice is a bit cold, isn't she? With provocation. I. Okay, now I've been quite defensive about Willie so far. But I'm not entirely sure what Janice gets out of this relationship. And do you want a spoiler? No, no, definitely not. You don't? No? No. 
you're gonna carry on watching the series. Yes? Uh, definitely, yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. No, I won't. I won't say any more about that. But okay, not recasting, but reimagining. Actually, you know, you know, I'm saying that I'm going to continue. I think that's really what I like about this. There's lots of different characters who work on their own terms, and I don't know if the show does do that. But you could give Willie short shrift sometime, have him barely be in it, and the show would still work. You could put the focus on pretty much any one of these characters and have a satisfying half hour of sitcom. Yes, I think so. And there'll be episodes where, say, Chancer is more the focus of attention, for example. And we had the episode with Mrs. Melvin and her new potential husband and what have you. Okay, quick reimagining. Okay, I'm I'm not going to say what I think first, so you tell me. But Okay, I I don't think that Willie and Janice are ideally suited. <laughs> no. Okay, Willie and Irene. What do you think? She has got a very caring personality, Irene, and I think that Willie is somebody who needs to have his ego stroked. Yeah. The only thing is, is that I think she could do better. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Irene's a bit out of place for me. Are we supposed to find her more annoying than she really is? Possibly, yeah, possibly. She just so. seems mildly ditzy, but actually quite pleasant company. Yes, and just occasionally the, the thrust of the scene seems to be, "Oh no, here comes Irene! Oh boy, what's going to happen now?" And it's like, "Oh, she's just going to be quite effervescent, a bit dim, and generally optimistic. That's fine. In fact, she's kind of, the the response should be, "Oh, thank God, here's Irene." Because I've talked myself into a corner here, at least. Somebody's happy to see me. <laughs> okay, well, we don't have to imagine this pairing, because it did happen in one episode. Irene and Brian in the back of the car, like Fletcher. There's no suggestion that Brian actually broke into the car. Right, okay. Sorry, I was trying to work... Yeah, it was Fletcher and Mrs. Fletcher, wasn't it? <laughs> Brian's a bit of a sad sack. And again... When you're talking about people saying things that in real life would be genuinely hurtful, but nobody really notices, there's just one place I think it it misfires. Brian's gone off in one of his little self-pitying jags and says, I put her on a pedestal. And Willie says, yeah, and even then you only reached up to her chin. He says that way too quickly. He doesn't say that too, Brian. Because actually, I was thinking... No, he says it after Brian's gone off, but he says it too quickly for me. Brian would have heard it, put it that way. As an audience member, it's like, well, either you got to get in quickly... It was just long enough that I thought, are they going to milk the pathos a little and just short enough? Then I thought, oh, that's t- it's, it's too slow or too quick. You, you either actually do say it to his face and cut straight through... Or let's just let that hang in the air a little and then puncture it. But it just came just like a second too soon. Right. Lines that we spoke about it earlier on, you can get away with potentially hurtful lines in the real world and get away from them in sitcoms. But one line that I thought... Okay, end of the last episode of Series 2, I've got a surprise party for him because he's come back from what he thinks is going to be his... You know, book contract signing. Of course, all gone pear-shaped. He then manages to upset everybody in the room so that the party just disperses immediately. And 
I don't know why, but I started thinking to myself, is this going to be a dream sequence? Is he going to wake up in a second? Is he going to just sort of sit there by himself and think, oh God, what have I done? I've driven everybody away. And the bit that I was absolutely convinced that that was going to happen was when his mum said to him, oh, you've always been a disappointment to me. I should have had you put up for adoption. And I thought, Oh no 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 that's too harsh no he's gonna, he's gonna wake up in a second and actually the next scene was his alarm clock going off and I thought yeah it was a dream but it wasn't it was just his alarm <laughs> clock going off the next day that's quite harsh that's something that would cause awkwardness at the Christmas dinner table put it that way <laughs> if that had actually been said in real life actually didn't she say that to Merle one as well I'm sure she said something like. Oh, I made that terrible mistake 27 years ago. And he said, what happened? She said, you. (laughs) There is a moderate bit of movement in series one and a proper bit of movement in series two, changes of circumstance. I think series two just slightly got the edge with he having his own place. You you get to bring in a few more grown-up concerns. Well, the thing is that you can also put him back in his mum's place as well when the need arises. Or thinks he was pretending to have pneumonia. Yeah, if if Willie is oh, he's a monster. Then. If Willie is insufferable at the best of times, then giving him a little bell to ring when you think he's ill, but he's just putting it on. Yeah, that's going to be too much. I think you'd run at the place screaming after the first hour. I think you'd rather be waiting on Albert Step to run up and down the stairs. <laughs> okay, here's a thing: characters who've got ambition, like Willie, in sitcom can they ever actually achieve their ambition and retain the sympathy of the audience when only fools came back in 2001 they cleverly began the episode implying that blimey the trotters haven't pissed away their fortune as we all expected them to have done and of course then they do but just for that first five minutes you think okay is this is this how things are going to be now? Are, are we going to be asked to, you know, is there going to be a point in this episode where Dell looks forlornly into the middle distance and just says, says do you know what? People with money can have problems too. You know, <laughs> money doesn't oh, buy you happiness. Ouch. Oh. oh. And, oh, yeah, I mean. Dead through blood. Ugh. Yeah, but, okay. I don't think that that would have worked if they'd done that, which is why they didn't do it. And I don't know if Willie. Like you were saying, if he was a good writer and actually he got his break and left the bank and became a full-time writer, would you still want to follow his adventures? Well, you give him a new set of problems. You can take him up a level but still have him be a fish out of water or slightly out of his depth. He's got what he wants, but he's got maybe slightly too much of what he wants. And as a new set of stresses, you'd have to be very, very clever to pull it off. But yes, I, th- I I thought for those three specials, there's, there's plenty of ways Del Boy could make a fool of himself, especially now he has the money to throw around, that we see that he's just making stupid investments on a bigger scale. Maybe my thing is, is if you let somebody achieve their ambition, God's sake, don't just knock them back for the sake of comedy convenience. Yeah, the thing is, though, that if you let them achieve their ambition and you run with it, then you've effectively created a new sitcom. That's fine. That is fine. I like going straight. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that, I, That's okay. all right. You yeah. don't, just to have somebody achieve their ambition doesn't necessarily make them entirely comfortable and happy. 
Give them new challenges. So are you saying that you would have found it upsetting if the last five minutes of Going Straight <laughs> Episode 6 had been Fletcher going back inside? And actually, oh. going back inside for like something worse than he went in for the first place. So he's actually done like armed robbery with like violence. So he's got a much, much longer stretch. Probability is he's not going to be seeing daylight again for, what, 20 years? Yeah, I, I can imagine that could be a bit of a downer. <laughs> My understanding is that Ronnie Barker actually said he only wanted to do one series of Going Straight anyway because he didn't want to get typecast as Fletcher. That's a really horrible way to end it, isn't it? Because <laughs> you know what about Lenny? Gonna... Um, Him too. That would just make it so much worse. Oh, I can't believe we're back in here, Fletch. Oh, how did I let you talk me into that? And then Ingrid's in Holloway. <laughs> well, hang on. Who's that leave? That leaves Nicholas Lindhurst. Does he come Juvenile and visit offenders. Him? Postal Scum, starring Nicholas Lindhurst. How would Rodney cope in Scum? Badly. <laughs> yes. That doesn't require any discussion. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, Hot Rod. When's that going to happen? Yes. <laughs> Surely the time is now. Are we, are we Do- done with City Lights? <laughs> no, no, but I'll just know okay. again, because like, David Jason's doing all the hours now, and so surely then, it's time for Hot Rod. And then Nicky Peters. Well, are we sticking to sport relief then? They've thrown their money away again. Okay. For a second time. As far as I'm concerned, sport relief happened in an alternate reality. There was nothing in the script of the sport relief episode that says they've pissed the money away again. Okay. So Del Boy's just, what, just got the urge? Bear in mind... No, 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 not even that. It's like like the the previous episodes didn't happen. Like, bear in mind that after the end of 96, when they've walked off into the sunset, what, not just three months later, there was an Only Fools comic relief special in 97 that was just the old Only Fools and Horses again. It was just them in the flat, moaning they didn't have any cash or whatever. And it wasn't like, oh my God, we've just pissed away that 6.2 million that we just won three months ago. It was just, no, that just didn't happen. For the next five minutes, suspend disbelief and just pretend it's like the old days. So that, that that's how I'm viewing the sport relief one. I'm not thinking that, you know, oh God, we've done it again. And they've done it exactly the same way. They pissed away the money the first time buying Brazilian coffee beans, and they did exactly the bloody same this time. Oh, Dell, you plonker. I think actually Rodney would use far, far stronger language than It was the than same that. beans from the same guy. <laughs> he's, he's basically gone and bought six magic beans, hasn't he? He's just waiting for the beanstalk to spread. I didn't know how they'd lost their money, so... Well, it's something... I assume that it just started in the first five minutes of like Del Boy bumps into Trigger and Trigger goes, I thought you were living in a big house and why am to all that money? And Del just went straight up my nose. <laughs> so well, Del is a raving cokehead now, is he? It's not significantly more depressing than... Mind you, when Del became a yuppie in 88, I mean, all those traders and what have you, they must have been doing a bit of that, surely. I'm not naming names or anything, but, you know, all those buggers with their red braces and their stupid glasses and what have you that you saw during, you know, like, boom of Thatcherism and what have you, they must have been snorting it left, right and centre. So, surely, you know, at some point, Dell would have gone in for a bit of that. Could you go away with that on Christmas Day, BBC One, pre-Watershed? Dell doing a line at the kitchen table? Because what's going to happen is, right, you know how he's always getting, like, dodgy furniture and what have you? The furniture always changes in the flat each week. 
So what he'd have, he'd have like garden furniture and it would be like a nice sort of decorative pattern that was full of holes. So he'd like lay out 50 quid's worth of the Colombian marching powder and it would all just fall straight through onto the carpet and that's where Uncle Albert comes in with his over. And yeah, you could have quite a depressing sight then, Del Boy sort of rummaging his way through the largely full Hoover bag. Oh God, I don't want to see that on Christmas Day. Put this off. Put the Bond film on. City lights, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so <laughs> went that away. <laughs> so city lights. So, so are we establishing that Willie cannot become a successful writer because either you'd lose your sympathy with him, or it becomes a completely different sitcom with Willie as a writer moving in literary circles? Well, I mentioned earlier Ed Reardon. Willie doesn't have to become an enormously successful writer. He can become a journeyman. And it's like, well, yes, I am doing what I wanted to be doing, but, oh boy, I've got to write something for the people's friend. The hell happened to my frame of reference? (laughs) Doing this flaming show has stopped most of my pop cultural understanding at about 1983. Do you know what would have been a good fit for Willie? He should have been writing one of those teletext soap operas. You know, like an oracle. Maybe you could have written an episode of Take the High Road. Oh, did you pick up on the in-joke, by the way? The episode where they have all the dodgy phones from Chancer, where they've set up, again, another parallel with Everdequeezing Circles, although I think actually it's before Everdequeezing Circles, isn't it? The episode with the Neighbourhood Watch. Yes! Yes, the Neighbourhood... Yes! Now, I had this marked down on my notes, EDC, lots of exclamation marks, and I thought, why have I put that there? Because that's not the... The swimming one. I gotta, I gotta get a secretary to help me take more comprehensive notes. Well, no, what it was is that the the part where they're in the police station, and Willie makes his one phone call, and he says, "I know my rights. I've seen enough repeats of Juliet Bravo." And Gerald Kelly was in early series of Juliet Bravo as PC David Gallagher. I have to rewatch that. I don't remember seeing him. I've only watched series one. See, I was. Killing my memory all the way through episode one, trying to remember what I'd seen Gerard Kelly in. And I thought, I know he's horrible and lustful. And it hit me, the Italian waiter in a sketch on Victoria Wood as seen on TV. Yes, that's right. And he was also the guy in the right to reply video box who's complaining about the lack of Toya on television. <laughs> so, you already knew that I was going to say that I enjoyed it because I did, as. I enjoyed it at the time, but it sounds like you have had fun with City Lights as a new viewer. Yes, yes, I, I intend to stick with it. As I said earlier on, City Lights was regional comedy, so to speak, in that strange BBC Nations and Regions speak, made by BBC Scotland, shown on BBC Scotland and then repeated nationwide BBC Two. A few weeks ago, we also watched the first episode of a lovely little series from BBC Wales called Satellite City. And I am bemused to this day that Satellite City never got on the network, and I cannot understand why. But how did you enjoy Satellite City? Because I'd seen it, and I'd seen it many times, but that was the first time you'd ever seen it. It reminded me of Mike and Angelo. Now, is that Mike and Angelo with Tyler Butterworth or with the other fella? Any. Take your pick. It reminded me of a CITV show. Well, if you're comparing it to it Spans, was just pitched that's a good thing. Way, way up! And particularly the American character who spoke like an encyclopedia entry on everything he was talking about. 
it didn't grab me. I'm saying it didn't grab me. Maybe if I stuck with it, but episode one did not make me want to see episode two. Shame, but no, I think you should. I think you should. Randy's a well-read guy, so he's going to sound like an encyclopedia on many things. And I just discovered that with the advent of digital TV, when you could suddenly get BBC Wales on your satellite receiver and what have you. And I just absolutely fell for it. And it's available on DVD. For some bizarre reason, City Lights is not available on DVD. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't get repeated a great deal at all, which is bizarre. But it's long overdue, long overdue repeat. So before we wrap up then, just to tidy up outstanding business, we did have a little bit of feedback from Birdie on the topic of the upper hand the other week. Simply wrote on Facebook, how I wish I'd seen Joe McGann pounding the hob. Now, I feel that I may have elaborated on that scene a bit too much because there is one point where he's saying, oh, I can't get these stubborn stains off, you bastard. But it's not like a 10 minute sequence or anything like that. And there's certainly there's no camera angle which implies that something else is going on. That That's how I would have shot it. But as you pointed out, Ocho, with my suggested dialogue for the upper hand, there's a reason why I wasn't writing the upper hand. And that probably extends to the kind of camera shots I would have chosen for the episode as well. I don't think that they wanted to suddenly make the upper hand uh, an 11.40pm sitcom. I think it was doing just fine at uh, half past eight. I think your version is about 3am after the transmitters have been switched off as well. (laughs) There is a rumour I heard about a comedian booked for a variety place who was so blue that to fulfil his contract, they actually put him on before doors opened. <laughs> it's the Conan O'Brien lesson. You always have your time slot written into your contract. <laughs> I have to confess something. I was once involved in promoting a variety event in a very minor capacity. I was responsible for some of the advertising for it. And we had this band that were playing and the afternoon of the show, the rehearsals were ongoing and they were so loud that we felt that we couldn't actually put them on the main show because as soon as they started playing, it was like, I don't know what having knitting needles stuck in your ears would feel like, and I don't want to, but I imagine it's sort of like that. The building where we were playing, if you went to the farthest place opposite the stage i mean like it was a sort of circular venue so if you went all the way around and hid in the men's toilets and closed several doors behind you it still felt like you had a radio that was on full volume in the room with you and so we ended up actually putting them on after the show okay the show's done finished cheer everybody audience leaves and we then had the band come out and play so you couldn't ask them to turn down We did, we tried, and for whatever reason, because they had their equipment all set up and apparently it was all specially configured for them, they couldn't. And they did actually, they they performed three or four times during that rehearsal, and each time was as loud as the previous one, even though they said they turned the equipment down. I think the equipment was knackered. I think the amplifier, I think the knob was probably broken. But there you go. Okay, are there any sitcoms that you feel would have been improved by going post-Watershed? Or, for that matter, any post-Watershed sitcoms that you think should have been on earlier in the evening? No. Or rather, let's come back to that question some other time. We'll have a bit of time to think. So we're going to have a bit of a cliffhanger, are we? Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you some time to think about that. 
because outrageously, Ocho, you are not here next week. Next week, Boggan Strovia will be joining myself, and we're going to be talking about Hancock. We're not going to be the talking Will about Smith Han- film. Oh, but no, we're not going to be talking about Hancock, as in the sequel to Hancock's Half Hour, featuring the Blood Donor and the Radio Ham and all sorts. We're going to be talking about the ATV Hancock from 1963. I wish you were talking about Hancock's. So do I, but the there's only about four minutes of it in existence, which you sent me. So if anybody out there does have the complete run of Hancock's, get in touch with the BFI, give it to them, and also if you can slip us a copy as well, that'd be lovely. That's next week on the show, and what are we talking about in two weeks' time? After the lesson we have been taught about announcing things with City Lights, let's just say, keep downloading. You're sure to enjoy it. Well, Ocho, it's been a joy, as ever. This is the point at which you say the same. I wish I could say the same. Okay. <laughs> no, if you come out of it now, it's going to be insincere. So, drop it. <laughs> I don't want any false compliments. Right, in the meantime, if you want anything for us, tweet us at the Sitcom Club. You can find us on Facebook as the Sitcom Club. And you can download all the previous episodes, and there are over 60 of them by now in the archive at sitcomclub.com. So, on behalf of Europa Ocho, goodbye. This is Hey Ho Mooncat and Co. saying thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club. <laughs>